Hi, I'm Andrew Short, and this is the Idealist Podcast. This project began as a YouTube channel where I put forward some new, interesting ideas about the nature of reality, videos with titles like What is Existence? and Who Experiences Your Life? I've realized that putting together visual content to go along with my ideas isn't always necessary, and it takes a lot more time than writing and recording an episode. So here I am in podcast world. In this episode, I want to discuss the human condition as it stands in 2017, why we as a species tend to repeat our worst mistakes, and the key idea I believe we need if we're ever going to break out of this cycle. Basically, I'm trying to say what I wish some influential world leader would say, even though I'm really just another voiceless peon like you probably are. Thanks for tuning in. Like many of you, I feel a lot of pain when I look at the state of the world today. It's hard not to worry about the future we're facing because history suggests that when historical forces give rise to things like nationalism, racism, xenophobia, and fascism, we're on the verge of repeating some of the most horrendous mistakes of the past. On the other hand, I'm also extremely hopeful for the future because I'm certain humans are destined to escape this cycle. I'll explain why and describe the key idea I believe we need to adopt if we're going to later on in this talk, so stay tuned. In the meantime, I want to break down why, despite the lessons of history, we're vulnerable to repeating this hopeless cycle of conflict and resentment leading to more conflict and resentment. To begin with, we live in a chaotic, violent world. In fact, the only way for us animals to live is by killing and eating other living things. We also come from a brutal, warlike past. It's not terribly far-fetched to suspect that Homo sapiens isn't the only remaining hominid species because of luck. We probably won out because we were the most cunning, warlike, and or merciless hominid species. We likely drove any other humanoid species we encountered to extinction to our species' benefit. So, off the bat, we need to accept that we have it deep in our instincts to behave violently to solve our problems. Of course, we're also a cooperative species, and things like altruism, brotherhood, and mercy are also deep in our nature. In the modern world, with the aid of millennia of civilization and culture, we've tempered our baser instincts to a degree where, on the whole, our world is safer and kinder for humans than ever before. However, when we feel threatened, we still tend to revert to instinctual modes of behavior and thinking. Everyone is familiar with the fight-or-flight response so hardwired into us animals, how, for example, a jolt of adrenaline can compel us to do things we wouldn't normally choose to do or be able to do for the sake of survival. Such instincts are invaluable in surviving such an unpredictable, dangerous world. However, this strategy of falling back on instinctive motivations and ideas doesn't only happen in response to a sudden threat like someone pulling out in front of you in traffic. Any situation that feels existentially threatening tends to make humans revert to instinctive modes. This sadly includes many of the historical forces in play today. Automation of jobs, globalization, secularization, radicalization, etc. Huge portions of the population feel that their ways of life, their communities, their cultures are being changed by these forces in irrevocable ways. In response to such threats, we're inclined to revert to more instinctive modes, ones that harken back to the way humans behaved millennia ago, and which are as deeply ingrained in human nature as is walking upright. To put it most simply, we get tribal. In the face of perceived existential threats, we fall back on and find deep comfort in an us-versus-them attitude. 
Symptoms that humans are reverting to consoling, easy, instinctual modes can be seen in the rise of nationalism, racism, religious extremism and discrimination, xenophobia, and the like. On top of this basic human vulnerability is the fact that stoking and encouraging these modes is an easy and proven strategy for political success in such times. Another tendency seemingly instinctive for humans in upheaval is our willingness to fall in behind a forceful, aggressive leader whose rhetoric may include rejection, persecution, or outright violence directed at the other who becomes the scapegoat for all the tribe's problems. When it's us versus them, the them in that equation is easily dehumanized and demonized to the point that we no longer see them as an equal worthy of compassion and treating them poorly is not seen as a crime or an evil, but a moral good, even an obligation. If they can be blamed for all the problems in the world, then they must pay for what they've done, for justice. It's always the case that those in positions of power in any given societal configuration benefit from the way that society runs and stand to lose if that configuration changes, regardless of whether or not that societal configuration is moral, sensible, or desirable. The most powerful members of human society benefit from our ingrained tribalism, fearfulness, and selfishness, because these flaws either, one, compel us to accept a narrative where it's correct that those who happen to have power should be powerful, or two, they distract us from realizing that the system is drastically rigged in favor of those powerful few. Though individually they are usually not monstrous, heartless villains, they derive their great power and privilege from a monstrous, heartless system, one which keeps the majority of people in poverty just struggling to survive, or, more to the point, powerless. As such, in the spirit of self-interest, the powerful wield their enormous influence to keep this evil system in place. Evidently, one of the easiest ways for them to do so is to encourage a belief among those of us with less power that we are actually powerless, that the current situation is permanent and there's nothing we can do to change it. The more hopeless we become, the more secure their position becomes. Furthermore, there's a visceral sense that settling into a tribal mode will bring us safety because it did so for thousands of generations of our ancestors. The urgent trouble with this is, in the modern era, this instinctual perception that tribal behavior gives us safety couldn't possibly be further from the truth. The terrible wars of the 20th century show the disastrous results of humanity dividing up into tribes and taking an us-versus-them attitude in the modern era. The stakes only stack up higher as technology and the damage we can do advances. This tendency to revert must be overcome if we're ever going to evolve as a species and move on to the next, better phase of human history. Compassion, compromise, understanding, planning, delayed gratification, these are later human discoveries than fear, anger, and aggression, and are much harder to engage when we're feeling threatened. However, I believe, and there are countless individual examples of this, that we're progressing in our wisdom, and we're better than always taking the easiest way out. We must realize that it doesn't have to be this way. It's not written into the fabric of reality that humans have to be warlike or subjugate others for their own benefit. It's not required that we behave greedily and with no compassion or foresight. We don't have to fall into the same errors our instincts always trap us making. If we can overcome our tendency to revert, we'll grow out of our species' adolescence and step into a beautiful future of justice, fairness, respect, and prosperity. We have to resist and denounce those who encourage us to revert, those who benefit off of chaos and misery. It should be the highest goal of humanity to transcend the animal parts of human nature which compel us to do inhuman things. 
We give in to those parts of us at our peril, at the peril of decency and progress, and we stunt the potential inherent in a species as clever, sensitive, and creative as ours. There's definitely a better way, and it's up to us to find it. Now, I know there are reasons that things are the way they are, reasons that go back thousands of years, reasons that seem intractable. I'm not denying or ignoring any of that. What I am saying is that overcoming our lesser nature is not as impossible as it appears. The reasons we behave that way are first, instinctual, and second, societal, temperamental symptoms of a society that never really got it right and is traumatized by millennia of cheating, war, treachery, and distrust. The sense that we're doomed to repeat this cycle, to forever bicker and feud over historical debts unpaid, it's only an illusion. In reality, we have every opportunity to refuse to go down that road. The very first step is realizing it 100% doesn't have to be this way. Okay, so, at the beginning of this talk, I promised to put forward the key idea I think humanity needs if we're going to break out of this cycle. This idea is crucial because one of the most foundational ideas we believe about the world is wrong and is the root source of many of our problems. In order for us to progress as a species, we need to let go of that belief. What I'm speaking of is something almost everyone takes for granted from their very first breath, that we are separate from the world, that we each have, for lack of a better word, a soul that is ours alone and which forever distinguishes me from the rest of existence. Whether this belief is tied to religion or not, feeling that our personal awareness is fundamentally separate from the rest of reality is a very natural belief, given what we perceive of the world. For example, as far as I can tell, I'm the only one that experiences my thoughts and sensations, and I'm the only one that can move my body about just by willing it. The explanation for this, that we each have some personal essence which transcends the natural world, was developed and entrenched in human society long, long ago, before we knew anything about electricity, about germs, about cells, about atoms and molecules, and about most of the true reasons any biological things happen at all. Because it's so ancient, it totally pervades our culture, being so taken for granted that by and large, it never occurs to us to question it. Our default mode is believing that a person's truest self, the part of them that feels their feelings and thinks their thoughts, is an entity separated out from the rest of existence. However, just because this belief superficially seems true doesn't mean it is, and it would be lazy to blindly accept as fact something so important, especially given the evidence science has uncovered since that idea was developed. Though we aren't yet sure exactly what it is about brain activity that makes conscious perceptions occur, there's a mountain of evidence that sensations and thoughts arise out of the information processing undergone by the brain. Countless instances from research on brain-damaged patients show how brain injuries can modify all of the things about a person we would traditionally attribute to their soul. It can change personality. Following a traumatic brain injury, it's tragically not uncommon for someone to be described as a totally different person. It can change creativity. A person can go from being of average talent in mathematics to a profound mathematical genius, as in the case of Jason Paget in 2002. It can change sensations. Stimulating different parts of the brain can cause feelings of giddiness, euphoria, intense pain, and dread. Across the board, everything we typically believe comes from a person's soul, in fact, comes from the physical configuration and behavior of their brains. So conscious perception and feeling, including emotions, sensations, personality, thoughts, and willpower, all of these come from the information processing your brain undergoes. What then does this tell us about the real nature of selfhood, the reality I think we've overlooked for too long. 
This is the most important realization that humans are missing, which we need to adopt if we're going to break out of the cycle of mistakes we've made in the past. Consciousness is not something we each own separately. It's a fundamental facet of the universe that we each tap into through our individual brains. Thus, if we call something that has experiences a soul, then there is only one soul in the universe. The universal capacity for experiences to occur wherever information is processed in the right ways. Individually, we are not distinct supernatural souls somehow trapped in these physical machines. We are natural conduits through which this one universal soul experiences reality. Let me back up and explain this idea with a thought experiment. Imagine that it's possible to scan a sleeping person's body and in the next room over create an exact replica of that person with every single molecule placed in exactly the right spot. When the replica is finished being made and is breathing and sleeping peacefully, a researcher goes into the room and wakes it up. Since the replica has the exact same brain as the original person still asleep in the next room, it has all their memories and doesn't know it's a replica. Uh, how's the experiment going, Doc? There seems to be no reason this replica person wouldn't experience life normally and be able to choose and will actions, since the only thing that's been duplicated is the molecular arrangement constituting the original person. It's clear that no supernatural soul has been duplicated and placed somehow in this replica person, yet they can still think, speak, and decide to do things just like a normal person. This would simply reinforce what the evidence we already have suggests. Any system in the universe wherein information is processed in the right way, conscious perception of the import of that information is experienced. This view is an improvement on the individual soul belief for two main reasons. First, it's much more likely to be correct based on the evidence we've uncovered in the time since the individual soul myth was proposed. Second, it simply doesn't leave the door open to doing evil if it's taken to its logical conclusion. If we are all separate lenses through which the one soul of the universe experiences reality, we are all fundamentally the same entity. The old worldview in which each individual life has a personal soul separate from all others and separate from the world that makes that life possible serves as an impetus and excuse for us to behave selfishly and maliciously. It's a primitive worldview suited to our animal instincts which encourage us to struggle and prevail over all rivals by any means. When we believe that the only real consequences for our actions are our personal sensations that result from those actions, it's all too easy for us to rationalize hurting others for our own benefit. Why does it matter if the chicken I eat lived in abject misery for its entire life? I don't have to feel that pain. Only the chicken's poor soul had to. The chicken must have deserved it. Or, it's an unfair world and it's not my fault, etc., etc. Sadists have zero reason in this worldview for resisting their urge to hurt others if they can get away with it, because they feel glee out of doing so. Humans in general feel that, on a fundamental level, someone else's pain is not my problem, unless that someone happens to be a loved one or a friend. It's urgent that we realize this myth is totally false. Someone else's pain is definitely your problem. It's everyone's problem. The old frameworks of morality addressed these drawbacks in the soul myth by positing a judge god who meets out punishment for evildoers and rewards the virtuous with very poor results. Evil actions which benefit oneself while knowingly hurting another pervade our world, from the food we eat to the systems that let many starve. The most widely esteemed moral traditions also leave open the possibility of acting out viciously against those who, quote, deserve it, unquote, be they non-believers, apostates, sinners, etc., 
Some of the most heinous acts of torture and victimization have been rationalized in terms of these lauded moral structures. In the more enlightened worldview, where we all share in the one soul equally, another being's pain is directly and automatically, and tragically, our problem. As an example, let's imagine we're watching a lion chasing an antelope. At this moment, the lion catches its prey, sinking her teeth into the antelope's neck and biting hard. In the old, incorrect model, the antelope's soul is experiencing pain and terror on the one hand, and the lion's soul is experiencing satisfaction and triumph on the other. This is 100% good for the lion and 100% bad for the antelope. In the understanding I'm putting forward, all of the material details are the same, except instead of the experience being split between two separate supernatural souls, the experience is simply part of reality. The universal experiencer, the one soul, experiences both the lion's pleasure and the antelope's pain simultaneously. Though the lion does not perceive the antelope's experiences, and the antelope does not perceive the lion's experiences, the one soul, which is home to all experiences, is present for both. This hopefully illustrates what I'm putting forward. A serial killer who escapes prosecution does not get off scot-free. His actual soul, the thing that experiences his life, also experienced the lives of those he victimized. In essence, every wrongdoer also experiences the consequences of his actions in those he wronged. A warlord, a Genghis Khan that rapes and pillages throughout the land in triumph and arrogance, is raping and pillaging only versions of his true self, the self we all share. On the other hand, a loving person who betters the world for themselves and others experiences the benefit they bring to the world through those others. In short, we are all responsible for and subject to the consequences of our actions, whether they directly affect our individual bodies or not. Now, let me just clarify that I don't mean that we only experience the lives of others we directly affect. We each are instead part of one fundamental subjectivity, that of the universal capacity for consciousness to occur. In this light, how galling is it the way we abuse and victimize the poor universe, which has to live through all of the vicious atrocities we allow ourselves to cause? When we raise millions of animals in cages too small to even turn around for their entire lives just to enjoy a little taste of meat for a low price, how can we just ignore the fact that the one that enjoys meat in us also has to endure such a lifetime of torture in them? Maybe this is the final reason that people hold on so closely to the belief that our existence is totally separate from all others. The sum of pain that exists in the world is too shocking to imagine having to live through. If you're somewhat convinced by what I've put forward and are feeling somewhat terrified, realize also that the experiencer of reality also gets to live all of the best, most fulfilled, most pleasurable, most satisfying lives and moments as well. Don't we owe it to the universe that makes all of this possible a respite from the pain that we've been causing? Don't we owe it to existence to bring all of the good we possibly can into being and aim towards a utopia that lasts for so long that it outweighs all of the cruelty we've caused thus far? We aren't each our own personal bubble, apart from all other things. In reality, we are continuous with, inseparable from, the universe. We aren't beings in our own right, segregated from the world that makes our being possible. No, we are each part of the universal being, a phenomenon of nature just like lightning or sound or gravity. We are an outflowing of the potential of the universe, indivisible from everything. Our separate consciousnesses are not a reflection of us being singular souls, but are each separate leaves growing out of the one soul, that of the one universal being that is the universe. 
There are a few significant hurdles standing in the way of this wiser perspective being widely accepted. First and foremost, when people have built their identity around a belief system, nothing could be more frightening or threatening to them than having that belief system challenged. This would seem right off the bat to be an impossible roadblock. Not only will people refuse to even contemplate this different idea, they will likely be appalled and infuriated that someone would challenge one of their most cherished beliefs. Second, remember what I said earlier about how those in power have everything staked in society continuing along the same path it's already on, and how they benefit from our fear, selfishness, and tribalism? How they almost reflexively will do anything in their considerable power to destroy anything that threatens to change that state of affairs? That most definitely applies here. This is the reason so many of our most celebrated and revolutionary religious and cultural leaders have been assassinated. Some powerful group always stands to lose when messages of peace, brotherhood, and wisdom begin to take hold. George Carlin said it really well in the following clip. You know what's interesting about assassination? Well, not only does it change those popularity polls in a big fucking hurry, <laughs> but it's also interesting to notice who it is we assassinate. Do you ever notice who it is? Stop to think of who it is we kill. It's always people who've told us to live together in harmony and try to love one another. Jesus, Gandhi, Lincoln, John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, John Lennon. They all said, try to live together peacefully. Bam! Right in the fucking head. Apparently, we're not ready for that. Yeah. Psychedelics are demonized for the exact same reason. They aren't illegal because they're dangerous to the individuals who choose to take them, though they certainly can be, like anything done to excess. They're illegal because they allow people to see the world from a new, clearer viewpoint for a time, a wiser perspective that encourages them to rethink the way they view the world. This, of course, threatens those who don't want anyone's perspective on the world to change, those who benefit off of the strife and chaos of our societies, whether directly or indirectly. If you believe the conventional narrative that the psychedelic experience is a delusional, insane state, please realize that this is not even close to true. When taken in a safe, predictable environment, psychedelics are some of the most profound tools available to humans for gaining new perspectives, addressing and growing through trauma, and reconnecting with the unspeakable beauty of the world. It's hard to overstate what an incredible gift psychedelics are for expanding human consciousness beyond the bounds of our culturally inherited pathologies, beyond the bounds of what one thinks is even possible before experiencing them. The insights garnered while thinking about one's own life and memories, or about the human condition and the miraculous nature of the universe while on psychedelics can be extraordinarily profound, and the experience can be beautifully therapeutic and instructive. After researching the facts about psychedelics, I was fortunate enough to have opportunities to take both LSD and mushrooms at different times in safe, quiet environments with only close, trusted friends around at a time in my life when I was feeling cynical, depressed, and lost. Those experiences allowed me a brief respite from the somewhat diseased perspective I had developed on my life in the world and helped reintroduce me to the wonder and gratitude I felt for existence when I was a child. I felt joy, bliss, and also an unbelievable sense of clarity. The depth of insight one can attain all at once on psychedelics is hard to describe, but it's not completely illusory like the societal narrative on psychedelics would have you believe. I learned things while in that state about myself and about the human condition that helped me become a better, more compassionate, more hardworking, and more peaceful person. 
That being said, I wouldn't just recommend that anyone and everyone should take psychedelics. Such a decision is deeply personal, and I would only recommend that if you have an interest in trying them, do your research and treat them with great respect. Not many decisions can affect your life as profoundly as taking psychedelics, so don't make that decision lightly, and definitely don't do them on a whim or at the suggestion of somebody else. The experience may involve being confronted with traumas or regrets from your past in a way very far from lighthearted fun. Such experiences may be difficult, but most people conclude that they're ultimately quite healing and valuable. Because of their somewhat unpredictable nature, it's very important to take psychedelics in a safe place in the presence of responsible, experienced, and empathetic people. If psychedelic therapy were incorporated into human society in a responsible and non-judgmental way, the benefit to the world would be absolutely enormous. We're lucky that the cultural perspective on psychedelics is slowly shifting to a realistic, respectful view on these profound spiritual and existential medicines. You can propel this shift by speaking candidly about your experiences with psychedelics, if you have taken them. The fact that so many of us are in the closet about our use is one big reason the shift is so slow. Okay, I've covered a lot of ground in this talk, so let me summarize before I leave. Human societies repeat the same mistakes they've made so many times in the past, war, genocide, enslavement, etc., because we have this weakness where we fall back on our instincts to guide us through threatening times. Our instincts encourage tribalism and ultimately violence toward anyone perceived as the other. The root of our problems is the belief that we are each fundamentally separate beings, separate from all other life forms and separate from the world we live in. I say that though this is a compelling illusion, it is completely wrong, and we make some of the gravest mistakes because we take this worldview for granted. On the contrary, you aren't only the one who experiences your life. You're the one that experiences all lives, the one that experiences all things. You can use this idea to grow your compassion. It's easier to put yourself in someone else's shoes if part of you believes you already are in their shoes. Psychedelics are a powerful tool for coming to this realization on your own, as well as addressing traumas you may have faced in your life and fears about death or other things that menace your everyday mind. The ultimate goal of human society should be to overcome our lesser nature and grow into a wiser, kinder, calmer, happier species. It definitely can happen, and I believe it ultimately will happen. The only question is, how many times will we have to repeat the same catastrophic mistakes before we realize we're missing something? All right, that's it for this first episode. I really appreciate you listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a review on iTunes. There's no better way to help get a fledgling podcast off the ground. You can also find my YouTube channel if you go to youtube.com slash idealistyt with no spaces. You can follow me on Twitter at idealistyt, and you can email me at ytidealist at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again, and see you next time.